Welcome to episode nine of my new podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have, and debunking some of the myths around our health. And today we are speaking to Marika Big. She is the author of a new book called This Won't Hurt, How Medicine Fails Women. And it's absolutely fascinating. So I can't wait to get talking about it. So a bit about Marika. She writes books about bodies and culture. She holds a PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge, where she studied the technological transformation of human reproduction. She now writes both nonfiction and fiction about the cultural dimensions of biology and bodies. In addition to her books, she writes freelance, hosts podcasts and panels, and collaborates with scientists and biologists to discuss and produce art that conjures new social worlds. So welcome, Marika. Let's start Hi. by hearing about your career and what led you to work in this area. Sure, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, so I suppose my, my career in this area started with my PhD. Um, I studied um, a, a particular scientist, actually, who was really instrumental to the development of in vitro fertilization. Um, and I looked at her role in the debates around human embryo research in, in Britain. Um, so that really set me down this track of looking at human reproduction, women's bodies in society. Um, and after I finished my PhD, um, I suppose a few personal experiences really got me thinking about medicine more generally. So I outline one of these experiences in the book. Um, I went to see a gynecologist and he just he made some comments that I just found quite jarring um, and a bit confusing. They just sort of sat weirdly and I couldn't really explain why. I left feeling quite numb, I suppose. And um, just thinking about them, I started to draw on some of the kind of sociological um, perspectives I'd discovered during my PhD and found that they really helped me make sense of the things this gynecologist had said, things about, you know, when will you be having your first baby, that kind of stuff. Um, and I found it really helpful and really um, sort of enabling um, and validating to see my own experience in the context of sexism more generally. And I wanted to share that perspective with women. Um, to validate their experience and and after you know after that realization and started starting writing the book just every time I spoke to a woman she would have a story to share and that really just you know animated me on on the path to writing this book just how many experiences there are out there um, of medical sexism um, so that's really, yeah, how I sort of got into this area and, and how it all began. And um, my research now has also led me to talk to women and listen to their stories. And there are so many fascinating discussions to have. Um, can we just go back to your PhD? So um, the the person you studied was an amazing hero of mine as mm. well. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about her? Yeah, sure. So her name is Anne McLaren. Um, and 
she was just such an incredible um, person. I was really interested in her, not just for her scientific contributions, but just the kind of breadth of the things she worked on um, and her approach to science. Um, so she worked across, you know, the fields of reproductive science, genetics. Um, she, you know, she contributed to stem cell research, all sorts. But she was also, her early life was really interesting. She grew up um, in London, um, kind of amidst social circles of socialists and scientists, um, her, her mother was a bit of a socialite um, and, you know, starred in an H.G. Wells film early on in her life, um, which shows mice being sent to space. Um, and then later in her scientific career, she worked with NASA to send mice into space. Um, she was a Marxist. She was collaborating with Marxists, uh, with Russian scientists during the Cold War when that was really not done. Um she, you know, and 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 my focus in my research was on her her role in public policy making. So she was just really good at translating science for non scientists, um, figuring out what what kind of concerned people when it came to science, um, and and trying to find the scientific facts that spoke to that. So really taking people's concerns seriously and explaining the science to them, so that we could move towards finding, you know, a consensus when it comes to, you know, quite controversial areas like um, human embryo research. So I just really admired her approach, her really collaborative, really kind of social approach to science. I, I was exactly the same. She was a great mentor for me. Um, she really supported every woman that she ever met. She always used to say, if you need anything, if you need me to write a reference or give her give any support she was there and I never actually worked with her um but she was always so willing to help anyone she she was an amazing woman and, and a big loss I would love to have interviewed her um but um she's left a great legacy and it was great that you you were able to study that um yeah so one of one of my aims as well is to help women understand what is normal but as you explain in your really terrific book um, we have done so little research on women and it, and it is a, such a travesty. And in some cases, we we still, in 2023, um, are not really sure what's normal. And you go through a lot of this in your book. I really like the sections where you wrote about the clitoris. I, I retweeted that beautiful image yesterday. Um, and a few people saw, yeah. <laughs> um, It's just such a great image, you know, and it's not a little bud. <laughs> um and and female orgasms as well you know it's it's so amazing that we're understanding this at this stage but i i want to jump right into some issues that um you really discussed that i think our listeners would really like to talk about and it's something that we really don't talk about and we should we should talk about all of this and that's female ejaculation is where i'd like to start so again i wrote about this in my book in the chapter on sex and your chapter gave me some information I really wasn't aware of, which is unbelievable. So, you know, we often look up to the work of Masters and Johnson, but they ignored female ejaculation, even though it was recorded, as, as you said, in ancient texts, such as the Karma Sutra. So, so please tell us more. Mm, yeah, I also found that really um, 
yeah, interesting, I suppose, to discover that in their work, you know, they did some really groundbreaking research, you know, showing that, for example, women can have multiple orgasms, this kind of thing. So really breaking with kind of traditional understandings of male and female sexual kind of response and behavior and challenging some of these these norms. But when it came to female ejaculation, um, they just dismissed kind of these observed this this phenomenon um and what i found quite quite sort of ironic about it was that they dismissed it on the basis that they thought women were misunderstanding their own their own response their own bodies and interpreting this fluid through the lens of male normal sexual response so they were saying you know women are just only used to hearing about male sexual response. And that's why they're interpreting this as ejaculation, when really, they were interpreting this phenomenon through a really kind of heteronormative view. Um, so they completely dismissed, yeah, this, this phenomenon. And that goes on throughout the science. Um, I really, I saw these, just researching these scientific debates around um, female ejaculation, you know, and there's not much on it. It's, you know, like you say, it's something that hasn't really been talked about very much. But the, in, the, in the scientific literature I did find, there's just this ongoing obsession with the chemical composition of the fluid. So, um you know, for a long time, scientists denied that female ejaculation was a phenomenon at all. But then eventually, you know, in the 1980s, you had some sexologists actually film this phenomenon. So increasingly, it was just kind of undeniable that this did happen. So it's almost like the scientific community, you know, when, when sort of faced with this incontrovertible evidence looked for another way to dismiss it and focused on the chemical composition and sort of debated whether this was a liquid, a fluid similar to male ejaculate or if it was just urine. And time and time again, science, scientific studies have tried to show that it's just urine. Um, and that idea has also traveled through kind of culture at large um, I look at um, obscenity laws um, around pornography and how, you know, they banned depictions of female ejaculation on the grounds that this fluid is mainly urine and so that it that it constitutes something obscene, um, uh, urolagnia, um, they call it. So it's just, you know, it, it goes to show how these scientific ideas then reinforce um, very gendered ideas and, and heteronormative ideas about sex in society at large. Um, and I think that's what this is all about, really. It's about kind of preserving this idea of, you know, male-dominated sex that revolves around male pleasure, male ejaculation, um, and, and this strange outlandish finding that, you know, women ejaculate too, and, and, and just how that kind of subverts this whole picture we have of sex in, in society it it is what you've just said is so unbelievable I mean the whole thing about the pornography you know I, I knew about that but when I read it again in your book it just just made me so crazy and I I know there was a another paper I didn't read it because I knew I'd be angry a paper came out early 
I think earlier this year or the end of last year saying, oh yes, it's, it's urine. Um, I've, I've looked at it. I've smelt it. I've, it's not, it's not urine. I don't think it's urine. Yeah. doesn't smell yeah. like urine. doesn't look like urine. Um, yeah. And it, it's just amazing. I think you said 40% of women um, ejaculate quite yeah. regularly. And why don't we yeah. know what it is? Um, anyway, it's not urine. It's not, yeah. I I, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and also, you know, even if it was, it's just this obsession with discussing, you know, whether it's urine or not. What about the fact that, like you said, 40% of women report having ejaculated in their lives and also that most of them say it had a really positive effect on their sex lives you know it's you know why are we fixated on on proving what this liquid is and not on you know how how pleasurable it is for women and and it should be celebrated the, the men i know you know think it's a, a fabulous achievement like wow i know i did it i did it you know and to yeah. think anything else is it's just unfair. It it really is. It's it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, twenty twenty three, and we're we're having to discuss this. Is it's it's just mind blowing. As you you know, really beautifully detailed in your book. So I want to move on to talk about hormones, a very hot topic, and it's again amazing how little we know. And I I loved your section on hormones and about how we we think of male hormones and female hormones and. And when, when we look even at some things that happen in the menstrual cycle, we have things like um, a hormone, FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. Um, that's what they first thought it did, but it does other things. <laughs> um, and, you know, these hormones are, are in both of us, uh, both genders. Um, so I also have an issue that you've talked about, which is medicalizing women's health. And for me, one of the hot topics at the moment is, is menopause and treating menopause as a hormone deficiency disorder, giving women or saying women or every woman post-menopause should be taking hormone replacement therapy, including testosterone. And I really feel that we we don't have some of the clinical trials and studies that need to be done. So we're treating women as guinea pigs. And I'm hearing more and more, oh, well, in our clinic, they say they feel better, but that's not uh, proper research that's not evidence-based medicine so what do you think yeah I completely agree this idea of medicalizing you know women's experience and not listening to women you know about the role that these things actually play in their lives um you know, I think the menopause is something that hasn't received, you know, a phase in a woman's life that hasn't received much attention. And I'm always wary of these interventions and how much they're about, you know, actually supporting women in their health and how much they're about kind of policing ideas of femininity. Um, I, with with the testosterone and, and HRT, I hear I've heard a lot about, you know, low libido. So how your libido might go down around this time and how it helps with that, which, you know, also just makes me think, you know, that is only a problem if a woman says it's a problem. And yeah, why are we why are we medicalizing? Why are we, you know, prescribing hormones without an adequate understanding of of what this actually means? in women's lives. And, you know, I'm sure that for some women, you know, HRT in general, I I know is really beneficial. And in those cases, women should have access 
But it's just, it's, it's so important to actually interrogate, you know, what it is that we're trying to do here. Um, you know, as with, as with female ejaculation, these discussions tend to just revolve around or fixate on certain kind of concepts. And I'm always just seeing that they're more about policing gender roles and ideas of femininity than they are about actual health. And like you say, with no, with no proper clinical trials, no understanding of the long-term, you know, safety implications of, of taking testosterone, um, you know, what that could do for things like cardiovascular health, for example. Um, I think, yeah, it's really irresponsible. I think the um, companies, you know, the drug companies, for them to have half of the population spend a third of their life on their drugs would be amazing. Uh, but I find that way too controlling. And as you say, I totally agree. For some women, HRT is their absolute lifesaver. And I'm sure that some women will benefit from testosterone. But we're all different. And this narrative of, mm. oh, the menopause is so negative and the only way you're going to lead a good life is to take HRT. And I, I've also heard a clinician say, the only way you're going to be able to have sex post-menopause was if you take mm. HRT which I just found so insulting and unbelievable. When I, when I questioned him, he denied he'd said that, but that was his opening slide um, that was very, very clear. Um, so you've also got wonderful chapters. There, there's, I have so many questions about all of these chapters, but I think we'll just summarize them. So you talk about heart disease, osteoporosis and cancer and how we have really misunderstood and still misunderstand how these diseases affect women what would be your overall thoughts on those issues mm. yeah so i i mean those are some key um examples there um yeah overall this is it's a discussion and i use these examples to show how you know this male default in medicine has misled science um but also misrepresented um just the facts for women in society and not given them the information they need um, to make decisions about their health so in the case of heart disease there's this misconception that um heart disease is a male disease um women tend to think that you know breast cancer poses a greater risk to them than heart disease but heart disease is actually the number one cause of mortality in women um so you know there's a huge amount of misinformation around um around diseases in general um when it comes to women um also there's a misunderstanding of how heart disease presents for women so they a woman might not have the um the classic sort of symptoms we've seen like chest pain that men have um, and doctors also sometimes confuse or easily confuse the symptoms of um, heart disease in women for the menopause because they're quite similar. So things like sweats, hot flashes, this kind of thing. Um, so, you know, these gendered ideas about, you know, what what diseases are, whether they're a male or a female disease, um, really mislead doctors in their diagnosis. I mean, women don't know when to go and get help. It's just overall dangerous. I also use this example in the chapter on heart disease of this app um, that when, when men um, inserted their um, symptoms 
of heart disease, it told them to go to the hospital. And when women did the same, it told them they were stressed. Um, I think the article was called something like, it's not a heart attack, it's hysteria. So it's just how misinformation perpetuates this dismissal of women and, you know, is, is actually dangerous. Um, and then, I mean, I'll skip to the, the, the cancer chapter because I think that's a, a different dimension to the problem. Um, so that chapter is a lot about who benefits from science. Um, so I talk about this case of Henrietta Lacks, who was um, a, an American, African-American woman um, with uh, cervical cancer. Um, and as she was being treated for it in the 1950s, the doctors took some of the cells from, from her, her uterus. Um, and these ended up being um, used in medical research. Um, it turns out that they... They were um, immortal um, stem cells, so they just kept replicating indefinitely, which is really, you know, handy for researchers trying to experiment on, on, on these cells. But they were taken from her without asking her for permission. And then after she died without, you know, consulting her family. Um, and But they've become this sort of workhorse in, in science. They've led to all sorts of really important discoveries, not least the HPV vaccine. Um, so... Um, that chapter is really about, you know, who are the primary kind of contributors, donators in science and who who benefits from scientific discovery. And, you know, the book as a whole is about how mainly men benefit. But really looking at, you know, the kind of inordinate labor women do to to kind of fuel and contribute to science really drives that question to a head. And it's also about you know, how do we how do we actually give women a choice in healthcare? Because a lot of the discussions around the gender gap in medicine are about, um, you know, inclusivity. So how do we include women in medical trials, um, or, you know, female animals in animal experiments, which is all really important. But it, it's not just about that, we also need to take research done on women, um, and, and what that research shows us to reshape how medicine is done. So we can't just include women and keep doing medicine in the same way if that way of doing medicine is really oppressive, if it means that, you know, doctors get the final word, um, if it means that mainly men benefit from discoveries. Um, so the, the issue of sexism in medicine is so much more kind of pervasive and insidious than just this question of, um, yeah, how do we include women in, in clinical trials? Although that is also really important. I, I found it absolutely so fascinating. And obviously I was, I was very, very aware of the HeLa cells. Um, and you, I think mm. you said that um, her family now, they, they could still start compensating them and getting more consent from them, but they, they haven't. They're not doing that. Is that right? Yeah, well, they, you know, they, there's these sort of tokenistic sort of like moments where, you know, they, they um, try to kind of in, involve the family in, um, in decisions about how the cells are used. But what I saw was that they were just presented with, you know, the option to, you know, to stop using cells in research, or to allow them to be used in research. Um but that to me isn't really involving them in a discussion, you know, that would require really understanding what the what the options are, what the potential, you know, 
research avenues could be what what we could focus on um you know as a scientific community like should we invest more resources in in into researching i don't know endometriosis or something else um so it's it's not enough just to present them with options and very little information about you know what could be done and um, that to me isn't really involving them in decision making no no that's not and and through your book you talk about how we do science and we normally try to get funding from people uh, a governing body or a charity and that really does frame how the science is done and you've talked a lot about sexy science and I, I think it's a really really true comment some of the very basic science because it's not sexy such as you talked a lot about continue continuity of care that they are overlooked and we spend energy on high-tech procedures such as femtech and artificial wombs and I, I found in some research that we've done we asked teenagers in the UK and in Belgium what subjects they're taught at school and we found that just a few percent have taught have been taught about things like polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis but they are talked about they all are more often taught about genome editing and making eggs and sperm from stem cells because those things are sexy and endometriosis and PCOS are not sexy but they're really really important so I, I wanted to explore now some of the sexy science that you talk about and I've done quite a lot of work on femtech and one of my big concerns is that we have some very well-meaning people who are developing tech that in my view has no scientific basis but it's sexy and i really worry that we are going to overwhelm women with more myths about their health as these technologies come in and i could give some examples but i but i want to hear from you what do you think about the femtech arena yeah um i have similar concerns to you i think um so yeah i mean the very word femtech um was coined by um a danish entrepreneur to kind of mitigate male discomfort around talking about reproduction, you know, in the tech space. So I think that already says a lot because when you can't talk about the thing, how are you going to design, you know, apps or services that really, you know, meet women's needs when it's still kind of taboo? Like how much how much help can you really provide? And I think that's evident in just the focus of these apps, you know, a lot of them are called fertility apps and when they track menstruation the assumption is that a woman would only want to track her periods um, in order to conceive um, in order to have a, a child when she might want to do it for many other reasons you know related to her own personal health so I think these assumptions these kind of sexist assumptions the same ones we see in medicine at large are going to be written into these new you know, high tech interventions, when our underlying kind of assumptions haven't changed without, you know, these discussions about, about gender, about sexism, nothing we do is going to make a difference. Um, I think just generally, we need to be really cautious about a kind of um, technological determinism. So this idea that, um, new technology means progress that that's inherently progressive that you know anything high tech is going to sort of change things for society we really need to question what progress 
looks like, what it means. And for me, progress is more about social progress. So like you mentioned, continuity of care, this idea that having the same, you know, midwife from, you know, throughout the duration of your pregnancy and aftercare really makes a difference to women's health. Something like that is more progressive to me than, you know, some some new app that just reinforces the same gendered ideas. I, I, I so agree. We've had this in the IVF setting for many, many years where new technology is being developed all the time and all of the studies on all of the technology has shown that they don't actually help, but it looks sexy and it looks great and it makes the couple mm. vulnerable, vulnerable couple think, oh, well, if I pay more money and have this new tech, then it's going to help. But we don't, we don't have any evidence for that. And then now seeing femtech and also the menopause field, I think we're, we're just making this problem so much worse because it looks, like you said, <clears throat> the technology look, looks great, sounds great. So women are going to feel that they need to use this. And I think it's really doing an injustice. And I really hate that we're almost conning women with this new tech. And as you said, tech, tech sounds like it's, it's going to help. And I think it's going to make things worse. So um, we've got an event tomorrow, actually, um, where people are pitching their ideas. So that's one thing I, and I really want to talk about. And I I always feel like I'm the bit of the killjoy. And I don't want people to think that I'm against new technology. I'm really not against new technology. But I do think it needs to be evidence-based and have a good mechanism for working. And I'm seeing more things that I don't think will work than than do. And and they're being funded by venture capitalists because it sounds like a great idea. So Yeah, completely. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's for me it's just if the social, you know, infrastructure isn't there, if we haven't thought about how we're using these technologies and who they serve, then we will probably end up doing more harm than good. Yeah, there there was one one treatment for the menopause where it was being suggested that we take ovarian tissue and freeze it when a woman's around 30, <clears throat> not with the view that she's going to <clears throat> sorry, use it to have children, but the view that when she's perimenopausal, she'll put back strips of the tissue and it would help with her hormones. Um, if you're, if you're are concerned about it and you feel you need treatment, there is HRT. Um, so I, I said to the companies that have been doing this I've said well have you asked women have you asked women that they would like to undergo this surgery um have their some of their ovary removed at the age when if they do want children they're probably going to be trying to have children with the assumption that they're going to get such terrible menopausal symptoms that they would need to have this treatment done and and of course they haven't and that very similar things in the IVF field where I've said the same have you asked women what they want no um so Whenever I'm talking to companies now that are developing things, my take-home message is speak to your target group. Who, who, who are they? And talk to them and find out what they want from this. So let's move on to artificial womb. So um, yesterday I did a recorded the podcast with Matt Brandstrom, who's um, the pioneer, world pioneer of uterus or womb transplants. And we we talked about artificial wombs as well. And how we, we would never say never, but um, it is it is that feeling of entering Aldous, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, a, a book he wrote almost 100 years ago. 
And here we are in this situation where we could, we, we, we've, we've discussed that being pregnant is a limiting factor for women. You, you've explained that really well in, in your book. So would we, would it really be the feminist ideal to totally remove that from us? And we gestate the baby in a, in a lab, in an artificial womb, and then we would be, you know, on par with men. I mean, I personally don't think that, but um, I want to hear your thoughts before I say how I feel. Sure. Um, You know, I think it's the same. It's an sort of extension of the same discussion we were having about, you know, any any technology um, in medicine. Just once again, if the societal conditions aren't there, if we haven't thought about, you know, who gets access, how, um, then we're just going to reinforce the same, you know, status quo. So it's the same with artificial wombs. I think if we were to introduce them now into, you know, probably at at a hefty price tag and only, you know, wealthier women had access and women who couldn't afford to use an artificial womb still had to bear children naturally, it could be incredibly harmful. It could mean that those women who still bear children naturally aren't, you know, given the same or even less support than they are now medically um, or, or that the, you know, social um, infrastructure to support them totally disappears as there's this assumption that women, you know, are no longer bearing children and it, it could really harm women. Um, you know, on the other hand, if we're thinking about okay, how can we give all women access to this and present it, you know, as an option for women who really need this as an alternative to natural childbearing at the same time that we also still work on supporting women through childbirth or bearing in society at large, then it could be a really helpful thing. Also with this artificial womb thing, I think it's really important to emphasize it sounds really futuristic and, you know, People are often shocked to hear that, you know, artificial wombs might be just around the corner. Um, initially, they would only be used for um, prematurely born babies. Um, so, you know, being born prematurely can lead to all sorts of health complications for the baby and the mother. It can be very dangerous, in fact. So um, initially, the idea is to use artificial wombs um, to, to support with that. And which, you know, I think could really save lives um, and and really help support women through, you know, a a really tricky, dangerous taxing process. So I think, you know, there's a lot of um, good to be gained from this, but it's always about how we how we implement these things. Yeah, that's exactly what Matt said as well. And and I agree for for medical reasons, there are some situations where it could be really beneficial but as we've seen with surrogacy, I think we we might end up with a class divide where some very wealthy women would feel, oh well, I've I've done enough of this. Let's let's put this in the artificial womb. So I think the ethical issues around or everything we've talked about is, is really something that's that's got to be considered. Now you, you've written several other books. Um, can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, well, so, so I also write fiction. <laughs> so um, the fiction is, I mean, it's still, you know, there's common themes. And I guess that's what you start to discover when you sort of write several things, you start to see these recurring themes reflecting, you know, your interests, you learn things about yourself. 
so my fiction is also very centered on the body, um, embodied experience, what it you know means to be a woman, and trying to bring, you know, an experience that is unique to women in this world and really underrepresented in literature um, to the page. So, um, so my first novel is called Waiting for Ted. It's um, about a woman just waiting for her partner to come home. And it follows her over the course of an evening um, and waiting for him, awaiting him at home uh, naked on a chaise long. Um, and weird things start to happen. Um, so, yeah, I, I do a bit of that um, sort of, yeah, quirky sort of literary fiction um, writing. Um, yeah, and besides that, I, I also work with artists and scientists um, to produce artwork that kind of, in, in again, in this space, you know, very connected to the book, thinking about how we can imagine society and the role of new technologies, rep new reproductive technologies in society and how we can include everyone in decision making on that. So that's, yeah, definitely another another big interest of mine. I'm looking forward to reading that book. You've you've definitely tempted me. <laughs> and I, I love it's weird. <laughs> Good, I can't wait. I love the marriage <laughs> of art and science. And I've dabbled a little bit in, in the past. And I, I think I think it's so, so important. So keep keep up your great work, please. Now, you. have have you heard anyone say, why didn't anyone tell me this? And what did they say? Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, love this sort of title. Um, I definitely, I I hear it a lot when I discuss the book with people, um, you know, often around symptoms. So like the symptoms for, you know, a heart attack in women. And when you talk to women about that, they say, you know, how did I not know this? How did I not know that this is how, you know, it presents? But I, I guess it really sort of what I really connect that kind of, that feeling, that sentiment too, is um, just this, I think when I talk to women about these issues, there's this kind of light bulb moment often where you sort of, you realize you're not alone. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's just the strongest, the strongest kind of feeling that emerges from those discussions. It's just that women really still feel very isolated um, in their problems, you know, when they go to a gynecologist and they don't feel heard or a doctor and they feel dismissed. And and just this idea that, you know, there's other women having very similar experiences. And it's something we're talking about more now. This, you know, it's it's better documented than it used to be. But it's it's just this idea that you kind of have to uphold this kind of perfect femininity and that any, you know, deviation from that is your own failing is so ingrained that I think it's just still such a surprise to, to me as well when I speak to other women and I realize I'm not I'm not alone in that. Yeah, per perfectly put. And I I find I'm spending so much of my time debunking myths. It's something that I've even got on my bio and some of my social media debunking myths. And uh, I find I find it frustrating that I have to spend time doing this rather than educating. And I think mm. your book really sums that up because every chapter you're debunking more and more myths that we've had around women's bodies and women's health well yeah I really I mean I respect the work you're doing there it's really it's a full-time job isn't it <laughs> debunking myths it's very frustrating um so 
One of the questions I I ask all of my guests is uh, about what motivates them because I'm doing a lot of work, especially I think for the postmenopausal women. Some of them have lost their mojo, they've lost their motivation, they've lost how to feel happy. So I'd like to start with asking you, what motivates you? I mean, partly, you know, that that kind of recognition when I talk to other women, I think that's a huge part, just realizing that there's this kind of hidden community of people, I mean, half the population, who have similar experiences and feel the same way. And it really motivates me when I sort of talk about these things and I have, you know, my own experiences validated and I can see that other women feel the same. And it it just gives me a lot of hope that if we keep talking about this, we keep validate, validating these experiences, you know, it becomes more real the more you talk about it. Um, and I just think we can sort of conjure this new you know, this new reality of medicine that actually cares for women into being just by talking about it more and and insisting that this is a real phenomenon, that it's happening, that, you know, it's not good enough. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, what makes you happy and where is your happy place? I definitely, I mean, this is so predictable, but I really love bookshops. <laughs> um, I love, yeah, I love the colors. I love how books smell. <laughs> and I love the idea that there's just hundreds of ideas, you know, just waiting to be discovered. So yeah, it's definitely bookshops are my happy place. I have to apologize. I read your book on my Kindle. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> no, I'll admit, I'll admit. Um, some people might find it. I, I was in a meet, a Zoom meeting during lockdown and I kind of coded my books, which is really a bit um, obsessive, I know. But um, yeah, I, I do read partly on Kindle. Um, and yeah, it was it, the, the Kindle offer on your book was much cheaper. So I must admit that's why I did it. So I apologize <laughs> for Fair doing enough. that. however you get you know access it's it worked it worked so my very last question what advice would you give your younger self yeah that's a good question um I think actually it's trust your gut trust your kind of intuition I think um yeah you know there's always a lot of voices (laughs) least of all kind of sexist voices telling you what you should be what you should be doing and you know trusting your intuition and really kind of cultivating that kind of confidence um isn't something that's really encouraged in society but I think it's always led me in the right direction eventually um and I could have sort of spared myself a lot of pain and anguish just by yeah trusting my gut um so I think that would be it yeah I love that. I think I think that's that's really great. So, Marika, I wanted to thank you hugely for writing a wonderful book, and I can't wait to read your um, "The Woman on the Chaise Lounge" is ready calling me. <laughs> um, and, it. <laughs> and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I wish you all the Likewise. luck with your next venture. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Joyce. Thanks. <laughs>